0: Good afternoon. It's Friday the 18th of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Brian Gerrish. Welcome to the programme, Brian.
1: Good to be here, Mike.
0: (laughs) And joining us by video link, uh, we've got Vanessa Bailey in Damascus. Uh, But Vanessa, we're going to kick off with the uh, situation of the wildfires in Hawaii.
2: Yes, we are. um, Absolutely sort of horrifying and fascinating story in equal parts. Um, the first uh, thing that I'm going to do is just to show a clip of a video that I would recommend that everybody does watch. It has some quite interesting, um, sensible information in it. But let's just roll the first clip just to get an idea of the devastation.
3: Survivors of the Maui fire say that they received no warning and that the flames appeared so quickly that escape was difficult. Everything was suddenly in flames and many found refuge in the ocean for hours while their homes burned to the ground and into the same powdery ash footprint we've seen in recent years. So far, it is estimated that nearly a thousand people have died. Locals are worried this includes hundreds of children who were home due to school being canceled that day. Several people are reporting that the government is not only doing little to help, but they are blocking local efforts to do so and are not allowing local donations through, and that they are blocking life-saving medicine because it isn't federally approved. Denying people access to bring in supplies, just supplies for people to live. The government withholding every single one of our donations because we are not a part of fema and red cross so none of this is eligible for giving out tell me why i have no freaking clue the people of maui are on their own for now and aside from the federal government's bureaucratic failure they have good reason to be suspicious just like what we saw five years ago in paradise california There was nothing normal about these fires. Within a day of burning, it was like a bomb went off. When you see the full full extent of the destruction of the line, it will shock you. It does appear like a bomb and fire went off, if I may. And all of those buildings virtually are going to have to be rebuilt. It will be a new...
2: Yeah, sort of horrifying scenes. This was um, an eyewitness testimony that was kind of getting passed around on Facebook. I checked it out and found it on the LinkedIn of Dr. Kathy J40, who was in Maui uh, when the fire broke out. If we just have a quick look, Mike, through the slides of her testimony. Um, So she points out that as soon as they reached Lahaina, all power got zapped cell phone, internet, traffic lights, GPS, the 911 emergency system, which is never supposed to go down, and the power outage caused every store and shopping mall to immediately close. Nothing was open. It's worth pointing out that even now there is a 12 mile media free zone around Lahaina itself. Um, no evacu- evacuation sirens went off on the day that the fires began. That was mentioned in the video. They failed as well. Maui has, or Hawaii, has the large, one of the largest emergency alert systems in the world, worth pointing that out as also. Now, she makes an interesting point um, based on what many people are claiming about what started the fires. She said that she personally experienced a strange flooding wave of energy in her head, almost like a seizure activity, both on the morning of the fire and the night before. Now, she does actually say that uh, historic Lahaina was a large old Hawaiian community that was in the way of corporate developers. Now it's like ground zero, declared a disaster area. Um, And as she says, uh, quite rightly, I think they will undoubtedly blame it all on climate change and welcome, welcome in the developers to totally bulldoze and level it. Then let's uh, move on and just see, uh, basically, Maui's emergency services chief resigned after facing criticism for not activating the sirens. He claimed that the sirens were not activated because they would have pushed people towards uh, inland territory and the mountains. And in his view, would have pushed them into the path of the fire. Hawaii uh, Governor Josh Green says the state is looking to acquire the land that was destroyed in the fires. He also says uh, that apparently they are not entertaining the idea of uh, foreign purchases. Um, He announced that the administration was considering acquiring properties in the seaside resort town of Lahaina that have been destroyed. He vowed to prevent foreign buyers, sorry, foreign buyers, apparently from swooping in to exploit the tragedy, suggesting that the state was better suited to take control of the land. There are reports from many uh, residents and people living there um, as holiday homes that they are receiving calls from realtors. Now, um, many people have mentioned the fact that Hawaii was targeted to be a smart island. There was a conference back in January, 2023, and this conference was planned for September, 2023. In Maui, it's now been relocated, as you can see, to Honolulu, the Hawaii Digital Government Summit. Now, when you go to their website, they immediately put a disclaimer out saying that misleading social media posts have been circulating falsely asserting that the Hawaii Digital Government Summit, which is now held in Honolulu, they say each year it was originally to be in Maui, is aimed at transforming Maui into the first smart island. Well, they're putting out this this disclaimer very quickly, but let's have a look at the history um, of of smart island projects in Maui. So first of all, we have, this is from the IEEE SMC 2023 Maui-Hawaii. Conference, the one that we're talking about, um, that will be held in Honolulu. People can freeze frame this, the writing is very small, and they can look at the various names on there. But I've just taken a few out, Mike, on the next slide. So, the 2023 IEEE Conference on Systems, Man and Cybernetics. So, first of all, Professor Matarek's talk on personalized human robot interaction examines how robots can improve. The quality of life of users of various ages who need assistance. Professor Herrera's talk focuses on trust in artificial intelligence, a must have characteristic when AI is employed in healthcare, government, justice, and daily life. Dr. Howard will share his decades of expertise in advancing AI systems in the defense and healthcare sectors, focusing on using genetic programming to solve the core problem of explainable. AI. Professor Ying Zhu Wang will address basic research in autonomous AI and symbiotic human machine systems underpinned by contemporary intelligent mathematics. So it gets interesting here. Um, So during the period between 2011 and 2016, there had been a smart community project called Jump Smart Maui JSM held in the island of Maui, Hawaii in the US with the objective of effective utilization of renewable energy that had been penetrating on a larger scale and widespread deployment of electric vehicles. A smart community was constructed by Hawaiian and Japanese stakeholders headed by the new energy and industrial technology development organization Nido of Japan. Smart community is a social system that integrates advanced environmental and energy technologies and provides citizens belonging to the community with sustainable, safe and secure society. And then let's have a look at uh, the diagram. I will uh, send the link of the PDF uh, for this project um, to be put up in, in the show notes. But this is just a breakdown, basically. You can see on the left that Nido is working with Hitachi. uh, I can't read the bank and the Cyber Defense Institute. That's Mizuho
0: Bank. So I guess that's a Japanese bank.
2: Yes. On the left are all the Japanese uh, collaborators and on uh, the right, the US, which are predominantly Hawaii based uh, universities. and you you can see when you when you freeze frame and zoom in the various projects that were um, being worked on. And as I say, you can go to the PDF and read all about it. Um, and then moving on, interesting that a lot of the university pages covering the kind of the Smart Island project for Maui have been taken down from the web and can't be found even on the Wayback archive uh, machine. Just moving on, mate. Um, Since COVID, this is quite interesting. Um, Hawaii home sales over 10 million, a lot over 10 million, when I've looked into this, have grown sixfold. Billionaires uh, like Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates has uh, large investments in hotels in the Hawaii region. Uh, Pierre Omidyar. So, So the entire billionaire complex has pivoted towards property in uh, Hawaii post COVID. Then let's look at what uh, Biden's up to. Um, so after his no comment uh, comment at his Delaware Delaware beach home last weekend, uh, Biden's response to Maui will be key. He's planning to visit the Maui disaster zone on Monday, and how much money has he offered to Maui residents? Uh, Seven hundred dollars to Maui fire victims, which sparks backlash calling it insulting, as Carrie Lake pointed out, it's 900 per household to fund the proxy war in Ukraine. 113 billion has been sent by the Biden administration to Ukraine to maintain the proxy war against Russia. Now, then I sort of thought, well, I'm gonna have a very quick look into if there are any other such fires um, going on in islands that have been targeted as smart islands in the future. Um, remembering, of course, we talked about the Greek wildfires uh, a couple of weeks ago that were in the footprint of of, um, proposed um, wind farm um, projects. So funnily enough, I found in Tenerife that out-of-control wildfires are raging in Tenerife. Um, And then moving on, I think there's some more information. The fires currently have a perimeter of 33 kilometers. They started in the mountainous areas inland of Arafo and Candelaria. This is the center of the island and surrounds the famous volcano Teide, Spain's highest peak and popular tourist attraction. 7,600 people have so far been evacuated or told to stay indoors. Um, and that's just a map uh, from NASA's fire information showing uh, how the wildfires are centered inland. But then let's have a look at what has been proposed in Tenerife uh, in March 2019, that Tenerife should become a smart island. And then an article from this year, May this year again, talks about Tenerife smart island, a smart tourist destination. So let's see what that entails. the goal is to transform the island of Tenerife into a smart tourist destination with integrated smart systems for safety and mobility. And the, initi- the initiative aims to use technology as a means of transforming the island and making improvements, not just to the quality of its tourist offer, but also to the quality of life of its citizens. So very interesting Um, that Maui is not alone in this again the fires themselves have um, let's say some questionable origin as they did in Greece but the fact that we're seeing the same uh, blueprint play out in Tenerife uh, does lead one to speculate that perhaps this has more to do um, with a campaign to enable uh, the introduction of certain agenda
0: 2030 projects. Yes. Uh, uh, what's fascinating about this, uh, the doctor uh, alluded to some kind of strange uh, mm. a- energetic feeling that she had at the time. Um, mm. if, you, if you think about uh, the, and this is speculative, of course, but if you think about uh, the discussions about the effect of, um, you know, energy from the sun th- through a coronal mm. mass ejection hitting, Satellites and so on, and causing widespread outages of satellites. Uh, this that some people are talking about uh, di- some form of directed energy being used in order to start these fires. Yeah. Uh, what fascinated about what she said was how widespread the electrical disruption was, which is why it made me think mm. of the of the the, the, s- the s- solar flare and the, the satellite system. So, I mean, obviously we can't know what started the fires. Uh, the clear as as we already know they have. The, the, the mainstream narrative seems to be climate change started the fires, but of course, climate change doesn't start fires. Something has to start the fire. And so was it somebody with a match or was it somebody playing with lasers? What, what was it?
1: Well, that's a good question, Mike. I'll just, just add to that that, of course, um, Hawaii, a lot of experience of intense heat because um, uh, yeah. many people out there have had to deal with the volcano eruption and the lava flows, and you can see many film clips of of, of mm. huge lava flows destroying roads and buildings and communities. So Hawaii has got a special experience of what to deal in a situation of fires, and yet this appears to have been so violent, that it's caught many people by surprise. Somebody in the chat box has just said burn back better, uh, which is a little bit of a cynical response, but it gets us thinking. And it got me immediately thinking that in UK, there's been a spate of fires in pubs. So the public house has disappeared, allowing a housing development to take place. So strange things do go on when real estate is the uh, subject. Um, mm-hmm. But what's caused it? Um, some people are saying, well, could it actually be some form of a weapon? We just thought we would put this on screen. This is uh, UK Ministry of Defence. And here's the headline, Making Science Fiction a Reality, Future Directed Energy Weapons. And if we just have a look at a little bit more detail here, it says, as directed energy weapons, as systems capable of discrete target selection that emit laser or radio frequency energy as the primary means to cause disruptive, damaging or destructive effects on equipment or facilities. Um, now, obviously, in this particular advert by the Ministry of Defence, they're particularly talking about relatively sm- small scale systems particularly to be des- uh, designed to fit on board ships or, or even vehicles. Uh, but nonetheless, we're getting the evidence that these sorts of systems do exist. And actually, they've been trialed and have been very successful. If I just bring in a little bit more, this is uh, uh, MBDA, uh, which is a conglomerate company Um uh, the Ministry of Defence is working with this, but this is giving us a bit more detail about what it's calling sovereign laser-directed energy weapons. And um, it's it's really very upbeat at the success of the weapons themselves, but they're looking for greater, um, uh, what's the word, uh, greater um, ability to track vehicles and focus in order to destroy smaller targets. So we, we can't say that any form of weapon has been used to start these fires. But if people think that energy weapons are something out of pure science fiction, they clearly aren't. And in my opinion, there's no doubt that the Russians in particular are very... Uh, Uh, advanced in this field, which is how they're destroying uh, drones in Ukraine. But having said that, of course, um, well, I'm not going to suggest that this is the Russians, but I've no doubt the BBC would be happy to suggest that. So we don't know, but um, energy weapons are real. Uh, You had any final thoughts on that, Vanessa?
2: No, I mean, I I think Brian's absolutely right. And if if you look at the, if, if you watch the rest of the video that we showed a clip of, they do go into this in some depth. Um, I, I think, you know, these days I don't rule anything out. Of course, we need proof. Um, but they're capable of anything to push through their agenda right now. And we know that they're kind of, they're running behind, let's say, because people are seeing through um, their lives, their, their projects, their campaigns. Yeah, and so I think they are having to rush things through.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Now let's uh, move to Ukraine. Then, well, not really Ukraine as such, but uh, let's uh, bring this on screen. Uh, this is uh, VG, uh, uh, it's a news outlet. Um, let's just do a quick uh, translation of what it says: um, Open to Ukraine ceding territory in exchange. For NATO membership, um, so this is uh, Stian Jensen, who's uh, the NATO chief of staff. This he is chief of staff to Jens Stoltenberg, uh, and he was speaking to VG um, on the issue of Ukraine and so on. Uh, he said, "I think that a solution for the solution could be for Ukraine to give up territory and get NATO membership in return." Uh, that he was speaking actually in a panel debate in Arundel uh, on. Uh, Tuesday this week. Um, So that was uh, his position on that. As I say, he's Chief of Staff to NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Now, Stoltenberg himself has absolutely refused to say, to make any comment on what the future might be, what kind of future peace deal might be done. Um, So it's interesting that uh, that this person has uh, chosen to speak out. Uh, I thought I'd just uh, have a look at the, the Russian response to this. So here's Mikhail Uh, Galuzin, who's the Russian deputy foreign minister. And speaking to TASS, he said that any conflict settlement requires confirming the fundamentals of Ukraine's sovereignty, its neutral, off-block and non-nuclear status. So uh, a reiteration once again that for the Russians, uh, any NATO membership for Ukraine, whether it's a Ukraine that has ceded certain territory to Russia or not, is absolutely off the table as far as they're concerned. Uh, Maria Zakharova said, uh, this is a bogus story and has certain political goals. Well, the story itself isn't bogus, but I take her point. The the sentiment is bogus. I I recognize that's probably what
1: uh, is intended by by that statement. Um, So I don't know what your thoughts are, Brian. Well, my, my my view, the Russians cannot accept this because it's all to do with warning time of an attack by NATO on Russia. And if they allow NATO and nuclear weapons on the Russian border, uh, it, it becomes very, very difficult to defend homeland Russia. America would never allow a foreign power to... Uh, have nuclear and other weapons on the Canadian border, for example. So the Americans know full well what they're doing here. They're antagonising Russia. Uh, I would have thought that the, uh, the the limit for Russia would be a complete split in Ukraine, and they're going to take the whole. Russia will take the whole of the eastern territories, and that territory would be the protective zone, leaving NATO to take the western sector. But that's my particular opinion.
0: OK, this uh, this is the website for Kongsberg, which is a, a defence contractor. Uh, well, they've just been handed £56 million by uh, the UK uh, as part of, or at least this tranche of money is from the uh, IFU, the uh, Ukraine, the international funding uh, for Ukraine, for U- International Fund for Ukraine, sorry. Um, so this is a funding mechanism that has money that's coming from so-called international partners uh, to procure what they describe as priority military assistance for Ukraine at pace, uh, and it's managed by the Ministry of Defence. The Ministry of Defence has issued £60 million of contracts, of which uh, this particular one for these uh, CUS U- air defence systems uh, is, is part of it. Uh, I- It's interesting that the money's going to not a British company.
1: Uh, well, I think this is to keep it grey, Mike. If, if the procurement goes through UK system, is possible to audit that system. But if it goes to overseas companies, that's impossible for the British taxpayer. So I think this is part of the government's deception on the public that it's arming foreign powers. It doesn't want the UK public to understand what's going on. So the contracts get awarded to overseas companies.
0: Yes. And then I just very quickly... I uh, want to mention uh, that the Czech Republic has ratified a defense treaty with the US uh, that, as this headline says in AP, makes it easier for the United States to deploy troops on Czech territory. Now, it's, it still requires parliamentary approval, uh, but this uh, now means that uh, the US uh, has similar agreements with other countries, which sorry, which means that uh, they can r- run their troops into Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Romania, and
1: Bulgaria, uh, at the drop of a hat. So, uh, yes. Well, it's, it's more ramping up the tension, isn't it? The more weapons go closer to the uh, to the Russian border, the more the tension increases.
0: Yes. So now uh, I've got another story here from TASS. Uh, I think TASS was the origin of this, so, so take that as you will. But I just wanted to mention this uh, because I think it's extremely important if it's true. MI6 prefers Ukrainian sabotage group for missions in Africa, according to an unnamed source uh, that the... Uh, the task is quoting, so let's uh, just bring up the sub- sub-headline because this is a quote. The task of the Ukrainian squad formed by British special forces will be to carry out sabotage attacks at infrastructure facilities in Africa and to assassinate African leaders in cooperation with Russia. Um, so the person that uh, they have named as being in charge of uh, the pro- uh, project is uh, Vitali uh, Prashchuk, who's on screen at the moment in this tweet. Um, And uh, so he has in the past, sorry, has past experience in successful, quote, successful liquidations and has participated in MI6 operations in Zimbabwe in his past. So this is going back to well before the uh, Ukraine conflict itself uh, and uh, this particular tweet uh, making the point that he has connections uh, with British intelligence going back quite a number of years. Uh, So Lieutenant Colonel of the uh, Ukrainian Military Intelligence Service. Uh, And uh, he, uh, as I say, born in Ukraine in 1980, carried out offensive operations in Donetsk and Luhansk in 2014 to 2018. Uh, He's been commander of a sabotage and reconnaissance squad during that time. In 2015, he was enlisted to the 73rd Center of Maritime Operations and served in Ukrainian military intelligence until 2017. He's now retired from the military that seems to be now taking part in this particular operation. Um, So uh, let's uh, just have a look at this. Why would they be so interested in attacking uh, Africa if this is true? Uh, Well, here is Ross Atom because, of course, Russia and China, but Russia in this case, developing infrastructure very quickly in Africa, and this is not what the West wants to see. So in this case, providing them with nuclear uh, reactors and uh, you know, civilian nuclear uh, uh, energy production, uh, but also this. Uh, now, this was originally announced. Uh, this is CAPS, the Central African Pipeline System. This was announced, I think, in twenty twenty one. It's still ongoing, and uh, this uh, article published in April uh, says CAPS, the uh, new gas mega project, aims to power Central Africa. But what cost? Uh, critics asked. Now, of course, it's getting criticism, uh, but at the end of the day. Uh, the, the, the African nations uh, are, the North African nations are taking the, and Central African nations are taking the attitude. If the West doesn't want Russian gas, if they're going to put sanctions on it, well, we'll get it because uh, we need energy. So it's as simple as that. Now uh, I just want to, uh, just before I get a comment from Vanessa and Brian, I just want to uh, show everybody or remind everybody of a little bit of video, which just got 30 seconds of it or so, uh, of Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Tony Blair, and just their attitude towards uh, Africa. Talking about Africa, this is not a typical place for NATO.
1: We are very committed to NATO and other places, but um, Africa is a place where we need to be able to act as Europeans. For example, one of the things that my institute does is work um, in Africa. And at the moment, we're particularly focused on the Sahel group of countries. That's that band of countries across the north part of Sub-Saharan Africa where you've got exploding populations, um, dire poverty, radicalization and extremism. We may well face the next wave of migration and extremism from those countries. It makes perfect sense for Europe to have the military capability to help those countries with their security.
0: And for that we created the European
1: Defence Union. Right.
0: Right. So, so I just wanted to remind everybody, uh, you'll have seen that. That video, of course, was originally recorded, I think, in 2018 when Ursula von der Leyen was the German Defence Minister. But the point is, th- the interest in North Africa has been there for quite a number of years, uh, and it is all about preventing Russia and China from g- gaining influence there. Uh, but this business of, uh, uh, Vanessa, uh, British intelligence agencies involved in these types of operations, isn't just a problem for the Africans.
2: No, I mean, I find it fascinating that they're going to be, according to the report, they're going to be taking, I guess, special forces from Ukraine. But who are those special forces? Are they the same mercenary special forces that were fighting alongside the Kurdish militias, for example, in northeast uh, Syria that we know are now fighting uh, alongside the Nazi battalions in Ukraine? Are they going to be the ISIS terrorists or the other various terrorist derivatives brought in from Syria to Ukraine that are simply going to be percolated back into Africa, where, of course, they are already in existence, um, just under different branding? And and does that then mean that those elements that were fighting, for example, in uh, Syria alongside the various U.S. and U.K. proxies are working with MI6, which of course is something that has long been suspected and proven by the multiple um, court cases that have fallen apart when those mercenaries have come back and been put on trial for, for working with terrorist groups. I mean,
0: uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, look, let's move on to, let's move to Al-Tanf uh, and uh, Al-Tanf if I uh, mm. pronounced that Alt-Tanf. properly. Al-Tanf. Uh, so what's, what's going on? What are the British up to there?
2: Well, this is interesting. Someone pointed out that, that it would be very helpful to have a map of where all these bases are. So I'm complying with the request from a UK column viewer, I think it was. Um, so you can see Al-Tanf uh, down on the border with uh, Jordan and Iraq, to the south is Israel, to the west is Lebanon. And then if you go up towards the border with uh, Turkey and Iraq in the north, you'll see to the northeast, that's the entire area to the east of Deir ez-Zor that is occupied largely um, by the U.S. and their various proxies, including ISIS and the Kurdish Contras. So what's happening at Al-Tanath, well, um, a video was discovered by a researcher friend of mine here in Syria. You can follow his telegram channel at uh, Believe in Syria, the resistance axis. Um, and he found this video, which clearly shows an armed group called Mahawiyah al fawra which is a derivative of the Free Syrian Army. It's also known as the Syrian Free Army. It all gets very confusing with this rebranding. Being trained at al-Tanif uh, camp, at the, at the illegal military base, U.S. military base, by what I believe is a British uh, special ops guy, because uh, the Arabic is spoken with a British accent, but not being trained in military activity, um, as one might suspect, but being trained in media activities. So very interesting. Um, Please roll the video, Mike.
0: Right. So we'll just say you need to read the subtitles on this, but let's have a look. Yeah.
4: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين معز عباده بعيدا Go ahead. You can start over. He used على work in combat to teach the rest of the Central doorts in Syria to�
1: away the defence if the usualstr organizes don't have stationary stationary just the
2: I'm الاجب... أه... أنت... بس بس انت مش يعني يعني I'm going to لدينا the next slide. I'm going if
1: <تصفيق> في are دائمًا في there مع many إذا في there في any مع there are many questions. I think it's a good thing to أحسن شيء to answer the question. هذا think it's
4: تمام أنت thing to تمام the يعني هذا جيد is not في المجتمع الدولي تمام the مو This is مو بس علاقات يعني of and <laughs> so, uh, the sharif
0: so and the
2: ending and the sharif ahmed so so this was actually taken from a from a terrorist uh, youtube Channel, by the way. So, you know, obviously they're also promoting themselves there at the end. But I mean, this is quite extraordinary. What they're actually um, training this guy to say is that we are fighting ISIS, whereas in reality, we know that in the exclusion zone around Al military camp and in Rukban refugee camp, which is to the south of Al Tanif, um, they are recruiting, arming, equipping, and training ISIS as well as these so called moderate groups. You know we know that the British Foreign Office has had a role in particularly the media portrayal of the war against Syria, the narratives, um, the so-called citizen journalists on the ground, the, the testimonials, the witnesses, and so on. We know that from the UK Foreign Office document leaks back in 2020, right? But this is the first time that we've actually seen it in action on Syrian territory with who is clearly. Um, a British special ops guy tr- dealing in 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 the training, basically.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and this is grey zone power um, because we've got the sort of soft end, you've alluded to that, with the media, BBC Media Action, for example, uh, the diplomatic side of getting into a country. Then we have the training, which you might have special forces involved. This is training somewhere on the edge of that. And then you've got the full-blown military training where you've got the SAS or whoever it is uh, going in and training these uh, Uh, forces to uh, subvert the country. This is a known procedure. Somebody said CIA funding, but it could equally be British.
0: That's very likely to be conflict, stability and security fund money as well. So anyway, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does uh, and you would like to support us, uh, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options uh, for you to become a member there, and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the
1: various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and uk. Okay. Thank you for that, Mike. Well, let's uh, move on to an email. Uh, A few days ago, I mentioned CAFCAS, the organization that uh, provides supposedly uh, legal representation for children in family cases. I've had a number of emails come back, but this one came in uh, to me yesterday. It's a forward of an email from Christian Voice. It says, a Christian family needs your prayers. A third baby was born on the 2nd of August at a UK hospital. Having seen stuff online, they express reservations about vaccinations, basically, and the result is that social services have taken the children and um, And uh, this is another very uh, sad story, but it also says, here's a rather unpleasant twist. The mother has been expressing her milk in order to continue breastfeeding when baby is returned. But when uh, social services allowed the couple to see their baby Friday Friday last week, they refused to allow her to breastfeed. How cruel is that? Well, of course, I've mentioned this, and this is not unusual at all, and it's very often a sign that they intend to take the child uh, for adoption or at least long term fostering, and indeed it's very cruel. But let's uh, jump from that into the BBC, and there's been an exceptionally brave lady, uh, Patricia. Chalfi, <clears throat> excuse me, who's been working for uh, many years on tracking down why the authorities won't talk about child abuse. Uh, let's have a look at what do they know.com If you go there, uh, you can have a look at these headlines, which are all to do with freedom of information requests, failure to respond to news of child sex exploitation. Uh, this was a request into the BBC. You can see it's labelled long overdue, evidence to support statement about child sex, exploitation. This is to do with South Yorkshire Police and the Crime Commissioner. Uh, And this amazing lady, Patricia, has been chasing these through. Evidence to support Nazir Afzal's claim about a 2008 circular about child sexual exploitation and this one here, cover-up of child sexual exploitation by Sheffield City Council. All of these are long overdue or awaiting internal review. But let's get on to the meat of this. And this is to do with uh, uh, what this lady has been doing to challenge the BBC. So here's one of the responses that came into her on the 26th of June. And uh, she's putting questions about... Um, information around the abuse of children and the BBC is very reluctant to respond. Here's part of the response. I have reviewed the request and read the relevant correspondence, law and guidance and liaised with staff in the relevant department. I uphold the BBC's initial decision. So not a lot of surprise there. Um, Now, what uh, Patricia was upset about was that basically once she began to challenge the fact the BBC didn't want to release information they held about child sexual abuse, uh, emails were being diverted and this was... uh, um, Causing the whole process to slow down. But take the point here that the BBC's own lawyer upholds the BBC's initial decision. What a surprise. Now, let's bring in this lady, very, very important lady. This is Dame Elan Kloss Stevens, DBE. She's acting um, chair at the moment with the. Um, BBC board, and she's responsible for upholding and protecting the independence of the BBC. Also, that the BBC maintains the highest standards of corporate governance. Uh, I'll just give you this, that she's paid a mere £160,000 per annum uh, for a time commitment of at least Three or four days a week. So that's a pretty tough job, exceptionally well paid. Um, but she's obviously going to be uh, looking after the BBC. And this is part of a reply that came back to Patrizia. Uh, And it says here that the acting chair, Elan Closs-Stevens, has asked that I respond on her behalf to your email dated the 27th of July, sent via Aberystwyth University. That's where she's got some connections. As you'd already be aware, the BBC has responded to your Freedom of Information request and has also undertaken internal review. Um, uh, But basically... It says we've done everything under the Act. Now, remember that the subject of all this is that the BBC doesn't want to release information they hold around the abuse of children. So if I follow this through, it says you have been emailing various BBC departments and journalists with information for over a year. It's due to the volume of these emails from Patricia, and that the same information is being provided multiple times that the BBC had to take steps to help manage the receipt of this correspondent. Now, this is disingenuous and or untrue because the whole problem is that the BBC won't release the information it's got. And uh, if I just go through this a little bit more, I encourage people to go to the What They Know website to track this through themselves. Um, But the reply uh, here from Patricia herself is it says, in essence, your rep- reply attempts and fails to justify what is seen as unlawful action, preventing the lawful disclosures re- relating to child sex exploitation. And uh, what is all this in relation to? Well, part of it is due to a testimony from this gentleman, uh, Nazir Afzal, he was originally uh, working with the Crown Prosecution Service, and he was chief crown prosecutor for Northwest England uh, in 2011. He finally left the Crown Prosecution Service in 2015, but he actually, on a BBC programme, uh, disclosed something very significant. Let's hear what this gentleman had to say to the public.
2: The, the wider issue, these girls were calling out this behaviour for a long time before
4: anything was done. Absolutely, Karen. If you think about it, uh, you may not know this, but back in 2008 uh, the Home Office sent a circular to all police forces in the country saying uh, as far as these young girls who are being exploited in, their, in towns and cities, we believe that they've made an informed choice about their sexual behaviour and therefore it's not for you police officers to get involved in. If that's the landscape coming from the top down in 2008, rest assured, all ages are going to listen to it Um, it only changed um, because of uh, the work that we did and the work the Times newspaper did in 2010-11 the fact that we were able to bring the prosecution in Rochdale led to this investigation in West Yorkshire opening it only opened in 2013 and the series of prosecutions that have followed indicate to me that the agencies are getting it right now but the reality of course is that we've lost a generation of young girls who've been left behind and abused
1: so this man said back in 2008 that there had been uh, some form of paperwork through closing down police investigations of abuse. Uh, he was interviewed by the BBC. The BBC clearly hold documentation around this in, this uh, statement. But when Patrizia attempts to get the information out of the BBC, they close ranks. Um, so i just, uh, if we can just pop that one back on screen a second. Uh, so in... Uh, Information which Patricia is talking about, she mentions Nazir Afzal here, whistleblowing in 2008, uh, and talking about the Home Office claiming um, that when 11-year-old girls uh, were, were being abused, actually they were making informed personal lifestyle choices to have sex with multiple elderly males from an identified demographic group on a nightly basis And therefore, according to the Home Office, this is not an issue that the police, and by extension the Crown Prosecution Service, should be concerned with. You, the BBC, have also been presented with the very evidence demonstrating that in every case involving child sex exploitation, every public authority or quango or government institution has always refused to provide information, even when the public records show that they have it. So this lady is, uh, I'm going to say, really going for it. I'll just pop this on screen briefly. People can freeze it. So she's talking here again about Nazir Afzal and his interview with the BBC, but of course uh, pointing out that this also in, Impacts on Keir Starmer, and uh, I'm giving another example where the BBC has been provided with evidence uh, that Matt Dukes, formerly of South Yorkshire Police during the worst of the child sex exploitation in Rotherham and Sheffield, uh, divinely refuses to provide any information, even when advocating transparency to his peers, and is now a senior officer in the Met, and it goes on. And the nub of it is is that the BBC is absolutely closing ranks to make sure that this lady cannot get information out of the BBC under the Freedom of Information Act. And at the end of this particular text, um, uh, Patricia is saying that the victims and survivors of child sex exploitation deserve better. And I'm going to say they most certainly do, but they're unlikely to get help from the BBC that's doing everything it can to make sure that information they hold doesn't become public.
0: OK, uh, let's move on to health Then and the UK Health Security Agency. Now here's uh, Maria Caulfield, Uh, she's Health Minister. She's written to the UK HSA to know what, so so that they know what their responsibilities are for the next two years, 2023, 2024. Um, And uh, so in her letter, she said, uh, I would like to start by thanking everyone at the UK Health Security Agency for your work this past year to protect the public and develop the core capabilities of the agency. Uh, She said, you provide the UK with the permanent standing capacity to prepare for, prevent and respond to threats uh, from infectious diseases, from chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear hazards, from other environmental hazards, such as extreme weather events, uh, from health hazards that arise from disasters. So that's what the UK HSA is supposed to do. Uh, But it goes on to talk uh, about specifics uh, then. And I just chose a few. The UK HSA will synthesize their multiple areas of expertise into a single organizational view, which ca- can be used to advise the public health system, uh, chief medical officers and relevant ministers. So it's going to do all of these things. It's going to make sure the public's informed. It's going to make sure chief medical officers are informed and it's going to make sure relevant ministers are infol- informed. That's uh, that's good stuff. I'm, I'm
1: feeling safer already. Absolutely. Yeah. So
0: let's look at the specifics. Uh, they will put in place capabilities and resources to enable the organization to respond to requests from the COVID-19 inquiry. As, a, as required as a core participant. So that's what they've got to do over the coming 12 to 24 months. Uh, they will proactively anticipate and encourage, advancement, uh, sorry, and encourage advancements and innovation in vaccine technology uh, in close collaboration with vaccine developers and clinical ex- experts, uh, and that's essential to the process. Uh, and uh, they will continue to develop Uh, pathogen genomics and surveillance capabilities by investing in uh, efficient and long-lasting data and technology infrastructure, Uh, building on the world-leading expertise established during the COVID-19 pandemic, which is a gift it kept on giving. So there you go. Those are the the, the key points that I wanted to pick out of that. Uh, The uh, UK HSA uh, doing its best for us all to make sure we're fully surveilled and fully
1: protected. Uh, And getting the best deal for the pharmaceutical companies to make more Uh, profit, but not dealing with people damaged by vaccinations. That's what they're for. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, neighbourhoods. And uh, a little while ago, I started to get emails from uh, this organisation called Next Door. Um, so here's a little snapshot of it. I was particularly fascinated by the embedded uh, uh, subject here. Another one. So this is Plymouth, England. So it's local to us. Another one. How much longer will pet dogs be acceptable in society? And this comment's been made after what is a tragic uh, uh, dog attack on, on a young girl, five year old, seriously hurt in attack by dog. Um, it's not so much the topic here. I'm talking about the vehicle bringing me this news. So we could have a discussion about uh, getting rid of dogs and why why that could be wanted by certain people. But I'm interested in this vehicle. Uh, and I, a while ago, started to challenge this organization um, as to what they really were. So I started to send some emails. But in particular, I was interested in how Nextdoor got my... Uh, email address. And when I started to communicate with them, I wasn't too sure who I was communicating with because you can see here in one of the replies, it's from next door Australia. So it's next door. it's talking about matters in the Plymouth locality. But when I go to the company, I seem to be talking to Australia. Uh, these are some of the texts that went back and forth. Uh, you can freeze the screen to have a look at them. But I'm asking about... Um, My data, they tell me they verified my account. I asked to close the account, but that seems to be very difficult. And I get more and more curious. And eventually I put in a subject access request because I want to know how much material this company holds on me. And significantly, I never was able to get a response to my subject access request. So who was I dealing with? Well, where did I go? I went and had a look at uh, what Company's House had to say. Um, next door, Europe UK Limited. Uh, we can see two directors here, and significantly, they're both American. And if I look at the contact address, I've apparently got to get in contact with San Francisco in order to take up a data access or a subject access request here in UK. So who holds the jurisdiction over this company and its adherence to UK law? I don't know, and I don't think the company does, uh, but this is more of it on the internet. Uh, Next door, I went to the Board of Directors directors, as I always do. And uh, let's have a look at some of the people. Uh, We're going to very quickly see we've got everything from Walmart to venture capital and RAND, which uh, always catches my attention. So if I bring in some of the individuals, I've got Sarah Fryer. She sits on the board of Walmart and the advisory board of Hope Global. This is all organisations due due to make the world into a better place. I've got uh, Jason Pressman. Um, uh, he was vice president of strategy and operations at Walmart. Uh, uh, then I can bring in venture capital and hedge funds. We've got Mary Meeker. Uh, she handles somewhere between about 13 and and 40 billion US dollars. Uh, I've got another one here, CEO of Bryant Group Ventures. And uh, if I bring in the last gentleman that I selected, it was Chris Valeris. And if you look at the end of his little CV... It talks about global ventures and the RAND Corporation Center for Global Risk and Security. So what does this company do? I get the impression, and this is just my personal uh, feeling, that they're sucking up ever personal, ever more personal information in local communities across UK. And presumably that data is of value to people who would like to know every aspect of our life. So if you've come into contact with them and you have information or an experience, uh, we'd like to hear from you. OK, let's
0: move on uh, to this now. In 2020, I think it was the government released uh, the 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. Uh, And uh, this was all about building back better, uh, possibly burning back better, but not just in the UK yet, Uh, supporting green jobs and uh, accelerating our path to net zero. Uh, And on the back of this then was a billion pounds uh, of so-called investment. Uh, And I just wanted to have, we've mentioned AI already a couple of times on the program. Uh, But uh, the UK is very keen for us to know, the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology anyway, is very keen for us to know that the UK's AI industry uh, now employs over 50,000 people and contributed £3.7 billion to the economy last year. Uh, And this is because they are now investing uh, several million of that £1 billion Uh, investment into various uh, artificial intelligence projects. Now, what they're saying is that artificial intelligence is set to transform the way industries cut their carbon emissions, thanks to a multi-million pound government investment announced on Tuesday. uh, 12 green AI initiatives will receive a share of 1 million to decarbonize and boost generation of renewable energy, Uh, and that's going to be added with a further... uh, two to three million pounds of support for other AI initiatives with the aim of cutting emissions specifically in the energy sections, uh, se- uh, sector. Sorry, as I say, that's this is money that's coming out of this one billion pound tranche for net zero innovation. Uh, and uh, AI is a big part of that now. Uh, so uh, the UK is now launching as well, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the Digital Catapult Agency, which is part of Innovate UK and supports businesses in progressing their ideas, and also uh, is also receiving uh, another half a million, uh, sorry, of half a billion uh, to launch the UK's first centre of excellence in AI innovation for decarbonisation. Uh, so that's good stuff. But it doesn't just end with uh, innovation. It's also about health, uh, because Nice uh, was very keen to tweet out this. Uh, today as well. AI technologies are now going to be speeding up contouring and radiotherapy treatment planning. Nine technologies recommended in draft guidance to help plan the treatment of those undergoing external beam radiotherapy for cancer such as lung, prostate, or uh, colorectal. So this is what the quote from Sarah Bryan, Programme Director for Health Technology at NICE said, recommending the use of AI technologies to help support treatment planning alongside clinical oversight by trained healthcare professional could save both time and money. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing
1: about people. Nothing about saving people there.
0: No, and and my question then is: uh, Okay, there's a, she's saying alongside clinical oversight by a trained healthcare professional, uh, is the aim not to get rid of that trained healthcare professional because, of course, that will decarbonise healthcare, won't it, by removing the human factor? Uh, And making things much more efficient, death uh, needs to be made much more efficient, Brian. And
1: allowing the robots to come in, which they've already indicated is the way ahead. Yes. To help people in need. Trust your robot.
0: And uh, let's uh, finish then uh, with this. Uh, The government's latest claim uh, that access to cash is going to be protected in this country. This is the government's claim. Uh, Let's see what they're saying. Uh, here it is, uh, they say that uh, the government is protecting cash access services free of charge across the UK uh, and it's going to uh, force new minimum expectation for cash users and that is that cash will be available from a cash machine within one mile if you're in an urban area or within three miles uh, of if you're in a, 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 a countryside area. Uh, and uh, vulnerable cash users will be protected by the Financial Conduct Authority who will be able to find banks who remove the ability for people to get access to cash. Uh, I wanted to bring Andrew Griffith on screen here. He is the Economic Treasury Secretary. He said, whilst the growing choice and convenience of digital payments is great, cash has an important and continuing role to play. Uh, People shouldn't have to trek for hours to withdraw a tenner to put in someone's birthday card nor should businesses have to travel large distances to put the deposit uh, cash takings. And of course, I think that gives us insight as to what's going on here. There's quite a lot of campaigning, uh, whether it's uh, GB News or Catherine Austin Fitz or us or a whole bunch of other people that are campaigning for the continuation of the use of cash. But of course, he's not uh, talking about large quantities. He's not talking about going into your local bank branch and getting a couple of thousand pounds, uh, because of course that's increasingly impossible. Uh, he's talking about the ability to grab a tenner to put in a birthday card. And this is just a PR exercise as far as I can see.
1: Uh, I think it is, uh, Mike, and of course, while while they're claiming they're protecting cash, what are the banks doing? They're restricting how much you can take, not just on a daily basis, but on an, an annual basis. That's money in and out of your account and all the banks are talking about it. So I I think this is a sop, a smokescreen. Yes. OK, well, we're at the end of the UK column news. Very important to say that we can't give pharmaceutical or uh, medical advice. But today we do need to give you a warning. Let's have a look at this. Uh, Side effects of veganism. And uh, some pretty, pretty serious effects on your feet there. Or is it a carrot? I'm not too sure.
0: No, uh, no, Vanessa, <laughs> can I just ask uh, your thoughts on that?
2: <laughs> Why are you bringing me in?
1: <laughs> uh, We'll leave it it there. We'll leave it with a laughter. Uh, A very big thank you to our audience, wherever you are in the world. Uh, It's really great to have you with us today. And a huge thank you to all the people who are subscribing to UK Column because it's your financial support that is not only keeping us going, it's now helping to allow us to grow. So a very big thank you to all the generous people out there. Uh, That's it for today. We will be back with uh, UK Column Extra in a few minutes. Uh, Next news, of course, will be on Monday at one o'clock. See you then. Bye-bye.